0: The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, o Lord. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: My dear brothers and sisters, I bring you grace and peace from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So our gospel for this morning, as you've now heard, is the story about Jesus walking on the water. The disciples are in a boat. Jesus is not with them. And they're caught in a windstorm. It's the middle of the night, and they are understandably afraid. Then they see a figure coming to them on the water, and no surprise, they become even more afraid until they realize that the figure is Jesus. And at this point, Peter, filled with temporary courage, tells Jesus to command him, Peter, to come out to the water to walk on it and see Jesus. Peter's able to do this briefly, walk toward Jesus on the water for a bit, But upon noticing the strong wind, he becomes frightened again and begins to sink, at which point Jesus catches him and safely brings him back into the boat. Now, that's a pretty compelling story. There's action, there's drama, there's fear and uncertainty and doubt, and there's a happy ending. Appropriately, therefore, today, most of our service this morning, the music, the prayers, the children's sermon focus on the specifics of this memorable event in the life of Jesus and his disciples. This morning, though, for my time with you, I'd like to draw our attention away from the specifics of this story for a bit to talk about its context. To zoom out a bit. Sometimes it's helpful to go deeper into a story. Sometimes it's helpful to go wider and get a bit of context. So i want going to do that this morning, and I want to even use that context to draw our attention to the Old Testament reading uh, about the prophet Elijah. So let's start by zooming out a bit on the gospel and get a sense of the circumstances surrounding this story. Last week, you may remember, we talked about the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes with five loaves and two fish, which happens right before this story of the walking on the water. And again, in the interest of context, what happens right before that is that John the Baptist was killed by Herod. And we need to remember what a significant event that was in the life of Jesus. Jesus was John's friend, he was a relative, Jesus was almost certainly a follower of John's before Jesus began his own public ministry, so his death would have been a deep crushing blow to Jesus. And indeed, before the feeding of the 5,000, last week's story, what do we read when Jesus hears about John's death? Here's the line. Now, when Jesus heard of John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place to be by himself. He wanted to be alone, to think about what had just happened, to absorb it, to grieve, to weep, to cry. But the crowds simply wouldn't allow him to do that. We're told that the crowds follow him immediately, and when Jesus sees them, we're told that he has compassion on them, on the crowds. And he begins to do what he always did. He begins to heal them. He eventually feeds them. And mind you, he still hasn't had a chance to grieve uh, John's death. Now fast forward just a little bit as the feeding of the 5,000 is winding down. After Jesus has healed and fed and dealt with these thousands upon thousands of people, In the midst of his own grief, we're told that Jesus sends the disciples away and Jesus himself stays behind to dismiss the crowds. And only then, after he's done this, was he finally able to go up the mountain by himself to pray, what he had hoped to do in the first place. And a few hours later, again, just to connect the dots, After he comes down from the mountain, that is when he goes out to find the disciples in the boat, where his help and assistance is once again required for his scared and worried followers. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment how Jesus is feeling. His relative and friend, someone very dear to him, has just been brutally executed, Before having time to absorb the tragedy of that death, he's surrounded by crowds who want something from him and who he takes time to heal and to feed. So he is tired. He is wiped out. He is sad. And he's probably more than a little worried about the trajectory of his own ministry after seeing what happened to John in his ministry. So he's worried about the future. And so he goes up a mountain to be by himself so he can rest and pray. And this, if you will permit me to continue to put this in an even wider context, is part of what connects this gospel reading to our Old Testament reading. And by the way, thank you to all of our members who've been doing these readings. Thanks this morning to Connie and to Ben. Ben, your Old Testament reading about Elijah had some particularly hard words. You did that very nicely, thank you. Um, And that reading from 1 Kings, as I just mentioned, is about the prophet Elijah, who, like Jesus at this point in his own ministry, is also exhausted and wiped out and scared. Elijah is actually so scared and fed up that he's running away from the work God has given to him and is actually trying to go out into the desert simply to die. He has had enough. But God isn't done with him yet. In this story from 1 Kings, God feeds Elijah. He gives him space and time to rest. And then after a long journey for Elijah, God meets him on Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, where Moses also had met God centuries before to receive the Ten Commandments. And on that mountain, Elijah experiences, we are told, big, powerful, loud, impressive events, wind and an earthquake and a great fire, all of which were associated both with Elijah's earlier work as a prophet as well as Moses' earlier encounter with God on Mount Sinai. But we are told very clearly, God isn't in any of these events. Instead, we are told that Elijah senses God in the sound of sheer silence, or in some translations, in a gentle whisper. And out of this whisper, out of this silence, come new marching orders, new directives for Elijah, and he's able to get out of his funk and continue his work and to pass it on to his eventual successor, Elisha. Okay, so that's a little bit of the context for these two readings, which leaves us where? How does any of that broader context inform our understanding of ourselves or of God? Why does it matter? And I want to suggest this morning a few quick ways that both of these narratives and their context help us to see and understand who we are and who our God is. First, a reminder. The context here for both Jesus and Elijah was that they were sad, afraid, grieving, and worried about the future. So point number one, if you happen to find yourself from time to time feeling the same way, You are in very good company. Those feelings do not mean that you are, in fact, alone, or that God has abandoned you, or that God is done with you. Second, we read these stories about Jesus and Elijah, and perhaps we are understandably drawn to what I will call the headlines of the stories. Jesus feeds 5,000 Jesus walks on water. Elijah calls down fire to demonstrate God's power. But those headline events wouldn't have been possible without the quiet, prayerful time that both Jesus and Elijah spend in prayer with God. So can I suggest today that our lives of prayer are just as important? If Jesus and Elijah needed this time for prayer to prepare them for their work, then why would we think that we don't? And if I can lift up, once again, um, as a way to exercise our muscles of prayer, it's not the only way, but it's a way that happens to be happening right now at St. philip and I direct you to that 31 days of prayer during August. It is not too late to become connected to that and use it as a way to enter into prayer. Third, and this is related to the emphasis on prayer, The story about Elijah particularly reminds us that God does not come to us by shouting. So if God comes to us in a whisper, then we need to find ways to attune our ears to hear that whisper. And maybe that means getting some time away, going to a quiet place, resting. We are preoccupied in our culture with action, with accomplishing things, with checking things off of our to-do lists. And so we tend, I think, to think that quiet time, Time in prayer is wasted time. But these stories remind us that time spent listening to God isn't an absence of activity. It is rather helping to prepare prepare us for the important work God needs us to do in the world. Which brings me to my final point. One of the things that gives our lives meaning is a sense of purpose, a sense that we are doing work that we feel is significant and important. And one of the things that can discourage us is the concern that what we are doing doesn't matter, that maybe we aren't achieving or accomplishing enough or that we are really not making a difference. And here, the image of God speaking in a quiet whisper, I think, is incredibly helpful. Because if God comes to Elijah that way, through a quiet whisper, through a gentle voice, through the sound of sheer silence, then I am quite sure that a seemingly small, gentle, quiet act on our parts can also communicate God's love to others. In other words, to be meaningful in the eyes of God, our lives do not need to be filled with headline events. Yes, sometimes God works in big and obvious ways, feeding 5,000, walking on water, But sometimes God works just as powerfully in ways that seem so trivial or insignificant that they seem like nothing more than silence. Today, may we not only hear God's voice in that silence, but may we have confidence that God is inviting us to carry it back out to the world that God loves. And may we trust that that will indeed make all the difference. In the name of Jesus. Amen.